What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love and Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, inside the cell is a tiny double helix, another fancy word for DNA. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbach. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be recording the first part of a two-part episode on one of the most interesting molecules in the entire universe. Dare I say the single most interesting molecule? 
I mean, it depends on if you like your as at your nucleic acids being ribose oriented or deoxyribose oriented. Get that ribose out of my face. <laughs> this is DNA. It's DNA time. So this is going to be part one. Uh, and today we're going to mostly be focusing on the history and the current research around using DNA. But please stick with us also for next time when we're going to focus on uh, some topics around using DNA as a technological tool. Yeah. And uh, as we record this, it is April 25th, which is National DNA Day. Complete coincidence, but a lovely coincidence. Yeah. it's uh, We had no idea. Yeah, we didn't. I just happened to find it while I was doing a search on news about DNA and uh, – the reason it is National DNA Day is that on this day in 2003, the Human Genome Project completed its quest to to map out the human genome. So there you go. Happy National DNA Day. Yay! So where's the treasure buried? Uh, sadly, we uh, don't have all the information necessary to find the treasure. Here, here's the, the thing. The last part is stored in an R2 unit that we can't right. get to wake up. Yeah, it was... I'm not going to go down the Force Unleashed path of logic. Therein lies madness. But I I do want to say that I read uh, an interesting thing from one of the researchers who worked on the Genome Project. and Because uh, they're often asked, well, if you mapped out the genome, why haven't we cured cancer yet? Right. Right? And they said, well, think of it this way. Imagine that the, the human genome is really a collection of ancient books written in a language no one speaks or writes in anymore. Mm-hmm. You have – just spent more, you know, a decade or more collecting all of the books, and now you are absolutely certain that you have all the books that make up the entire collection of this one library, but you still can't read them yet. Or not <laughs> at, all of them. Or at least not all of them. And that's what is going to be taking up a lot of time for the next decade or so yeah. uh, while we while we learn what these books say and what they mean and how to Use them. Uh, yeah. Right now we've got the equivalent of like run, spot, run. Yeah. Or go, spot, go. I, I, I'm behind on my board book titles. Uh, that's, but, uh, that's C, Dick and Jane is what you're yes, talking about. Sure. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah. So, so today in this first episode, we wanted to just talk about what DNA is and what it is being used for currently. Uh, I'll go into a little bit of the history of, of how it was potentially created here on the planet Earth and also how we discovered it because, you know, it's a relatively recent discovery in human history. Right. Uh, So let's start with the basics. At base, DNA is, of course, chemistry. But as we all know, it's the basis for all of the stuff we know of in the universe that is definitely in the alive category, though maybe not some things that are just maybe sort of alive, like prions. And we're not going to do all the standard uh, stuff you learned in school about what DNA does. But just for a brief refresher, the really simple version, what does DNA do? Well, you can think about your body as a type of machine. And Mm -hmm. that machine is made up of parts. And most of these parts are proteins. Proteins are like tiny, very simple robots that work together to make more complex robots that are your organs, which, of course, work together to make the, the real robot, which is you. Right. Uh, Meat robots, yay. But there are all these little robots in your body, and they're proteins. So what makes these proteins? The answer is DNA. DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, is a long-chain molecule. It's one really huge, long molecule that contains an ordered sequence of what are called nucleotides. These are the building blocks of the DNA. And the sequence of the nucleotides, what order they come in, determines what proteins get made and how they get used. So DNA, you can think of it as like both the code for what your body should be like 
and also the machine that builds the machines that builds the machines that build your body. Right. One protein at a time. Now, if you find all that confusing, you can just refer to the helpful educational film Mr. DNA at the beginning of Jurassic Park. Which is so good. It is. I actually oh, watched Mr. it. Mr. DNA, I, where did you come from? I watched it again before we <laughs> before we recorded this show. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about, like, well, where do we think DNA came from? Like, where, what, what, we know that it's, it's integral to life here on Earth. How did it get started? That's a really interesting question, and it's easily a whole episode in itself, so we can't explore that entirely here if we want to get to all the other stuff we were going to talk about today. But the short answer is, this is still a really big, unsettled question in the origins of life and biochemistry. We have some good ideas, but nobody really knows with confidence yet where DNA came from and exactly what role it played in the emergence of life on Earth. For example, one big question like we said earlier, DNA is the basis of pretty much all life on Earth today. But which came first, DNA or life? Mm-hmm. Was there non-DNA based life before there was DNA based life? Yeah, it's one of those chicken or the egg kind of kind of questions. Exactly. It really is. And uh, it's there. There have been plenty of people looking into trying to at least hypothesize where DNA came from, whether or not it was a product of some early form of life or if, in fact, It was the thing that allowed life to emerge. Yeah, and one issue here is that DNA is a it's a very complex molecule. It doesn't. uh, And so for this reason, people generally don't think it looks like something that would randomly self-assemble without some sort of precursor. Uh, and so a lot of the, the question, a lot of the investigations on where did DNA come from are looking at like, well, what could a chemical precursor be? What could there have been that uh, facilitated the creation of this really complex molecule? And one very popular theory, though we don't know it's the answer yet, it, it's a strong hypothesis, is the so-called RNA world. Right. So ribonucleic acid. Yeah. Uh, this is a... a- somewhat simpler molecule than DNA. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Let's clarify the difference there between the two. All right. So they're both nucleic acids. Uh, First of all, the sugar element of the nucleic acids, uh, they're composed of a sugar element as well as some other pieces. But the sugar element is different for both. You have uh, deoxyribose for DNA and mm-hmm. just ribose for RNA. Yeah. So that's that's a major difference right there. Who who who's who gets out of bed for ribose? <laughs> really you got to hold out for that deoxyribose. Well, yeah. If if you if you're lacking <laughs> DNA, you're not getting out of bed. Uh DNA is is double stranded. You know, we think of that that classic uh double helix yeah, uh, the twisted ladder. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about in a minute. Uh RNA is a single strand molecule. Uh, DNA stores and transfers genetic information in humans. RNA codes for amino acids and acts kind of like a messenger between DNA and ribosomes to make proteins. Right. So those are the differences. So let's talk about some of the research. In 2009, a group of scientists successfully synthesized two of the four nucleotides that make up RNA using chemicals that we believe were present on primordial Earth. So this does not necessarily mean that the hypothesis is true. It just means it makes it sort of plausible, at least for RNA, right? That RNA could spontaneously form based upon some conditions on Earth. And again, it's only the proof of two of those four nucleotides. They're still working on the other two to see if there's a a way that the chemicals that we think were around in primordial Earth could have uh, developed into these building blocks for RNA. Right. Um now, one of those scientists have sen- has since gone on to see if he can do the same thing with DNA nucleotides 
using a similar approach to that RNA experiment. Uh, but sugars in DNA nucleotides are harder to work with than RNA counterparts uh, before you actually assemble into DNA. Once it's assembled in DNA, it's really stable. Yeah. But before then, it's just tough to work with. So ultimately, we still don't know if RNA and also DNA preceded life. But at least the work that we've seen so far suggests that it's still plausible. It's it's not necessarily um, uh, a dead end yet until we get to a point that we have to say, well, we've tried everything. We can't get any of these chemicals to work out the way we thought it would back on the primordial earth conditions. Maybe there's an alternative answer to this question. Yeah. But uh, it's a fascinating question. I absolutely. Mean, it's, it's crazy that we don't know the answer to this. And oh, yeah. so it's so exciting to read about, you know, what we're learning. Yeah. It's so it's so big and basic. Um, uh, other research that I read indicated that uh, that another factor, meteor impacts in primordial Earth, might have been the key to putting all of this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and OK, one of the theories about how DNA and life in general arose on Earth is that amino acids and nucleotides hitched a ride here on, on meteors and other bodies that you know, were from elsewhere. Right. And that's how they got here. Um, now, of course, that doesn't answer the question of how they were assembled, but that's how they arrived on this planet. Uh, sure. Which is, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a set of questions that all go together. I mean, right. clearly the lizard people put it together. Yeah. Right. And they put it on rocks and pushed them to Earth. Well, absolutely. Is that what you call those naked dudes in Prometheus? <laughs> lizard people? <laughs> no, I call them frequently. Go ahead, Lauren. Excellent. Uh, so th- there has been, though, skepticism in the research community about whether the, the breadth of amino acids and nucleotides that we see here on Earth could have possibly arrived intact or even could have formed from things that might have arrived intact. Mm. But so there was this study that was published uh, back in August of 2015 by a team out of Japan, and they simulated a meteorite hitting an ancient ocean. And they, they found that the energy from the impact together with the raw physical materials, the the inorganic compounds that were likely to have been present, could indeed have formed nucleotides and amino acids. They they found uh, when they they studied their post-impact stuff, they found nine amino acids that are all involved with the formation of proteins and also two nucleotides. So that's that's pretty fascinating. That's That's great. That's really an interesting idea. Uh, And obviously, if we were to study this further and and conclude that, in fact, these molecules were uh, extraterrestrial in nature. As Joe was pointing out, that then leads to a whole new series yeah. of questions. Oh, about right. Which are maybe even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, and it may be that perhaps these are questions that are are ultimately unknowable to us. We don't – you know, maybe that that we will have a certain percentage of certainty for one versus another. But uh, – I'm not entirely certain, short of time travel, how we would ever get to the very bottom of this. Like, what would be the the conclusive proof that would uh, make one hypothesis stand well over the other? Yeah, it seems like probably the best we could hope to do is if we could uh, offer a lot of hypotheses and note that eventually one of them works under lab conditions and the others don't, which gives you some degree of confidence that that's probably the right answer, but we'll never really know. Right, right. It's not really a provable hypothesis. Um, But 
But hey, okay, so speaking of time travel, we have here in the studio with us today the Wayback Machine, borrowed from Tech Stuff. Yeah, Tech Stuff and Stuff You Should Know. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen this baby, and i got to tell you, it's a little worse for wear. I'm pretty sure the Stuff You Should Know guys... I've been going back to the 60s for some fun, but, uh, <sighs> yeah, let's, uh, Josh and Chuck. Let's put it to use and really find out, like, uh, let's, let's talk about the actual discovery of DNA. Not, not when it was potentially first formed on Earth, but when we humans first became aware of it. Okay. Well, you may have heard this story before. Of course, the answer is that Watson and Crick discovered DNA in the 1950s, except that's not true. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, but the book told me. No, this is the thing. Books I, never lie, Joe. For some reason, even my – I've read about this before and even my brain goes to this place. Yeah, Watson and Crick, 1950s, discovered DNA. That's not true. No. Uh, so who really did discover DNA and what is it that Watson and Crick supposedly discovered or, or contributed to our understanding of DNA? Uh, one interesting fact to point out – People knew about heredity before they knew about DNA, and this is a thing that can easily be lost because we now equate DNA in standard conversation with the idea of uh, heritable information. Mm -hmm. So you get stuff from your parents. People just say, oh, it's in your DNA. Right. But that that is a relatively recent thing to enter the common parlance. And so people knew about inheriting traits from parents long before they knew what the molecule was in the body that conveyed that information. Right. Uh, right. So in order to to get to the bottom of this question, we're going to go back in our way back machine to 1869. Oh, that's why the numbers are. I was wondering. I just thought that was just randomly put there. I, when I was saying 60s, I actually did mean the 1860s. Oh, well, uh, were there good party times there, too? I I just assumed if Josh and Chuck were doing it. But now I know oh, that no, 1869 yeah. was set for us. 1860. Yeah. Have you ever seen Gone with the Wind? There's lots of parties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Let's just. They get, don't look like a lot of fun. Let's but. just get in the wayback machine and, and go check out where we're going. Okay, we're here, and there's so much pus. <laughs> so in 1869, th- there's this Swiss biochemist uh-huh. at the University of Tübingen, and his name is Johann Friedrich Miescher, mm-hmm. and he was studying pus. That explains this, then. <laughs> Yeah, no joke. Yeah, so there was pus everywhere. Uh, Miescher had a uh, he had an arrangement, you might say, with a nearby <laughs> surgical clinic that would send him filthy used bandages that were dripping with pus. And you know, when you think about filthy used bandages dripping with pus, most people you wouldn't want to handle them. You know, do things with them, spend your Saturday on them. Not not way up on my list of things to do. But in fact, these pus soaked bandages turned out to be a scientific gold mine. Because of the following reason. So pus contains mostly dead leukocytes, right. which are white blood cells. Yep. He was studying these white blood cells to uh, understand the proteins in them. But Miescher also discovered in the course of his research that in the nucleus of each of the white blood cells, there was a common substance that had nitrogen and phosphorus atoms in it. Uh, and which was chemically distinct from the protein. So it's this stuff there in the cell nucleus. It's not a protein. It's got nitrogen and phosphorus. What is it? And he called this stuff nuclein, which later became known as nucleic acid. And once it was totally isolated from the surrounding proteins and all the other stuff, the pure molecule got the name we know today, deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. Well... This is fascinating, Joe, but I would like us all to take a pledge that 
none of us will utter the word pus again in the rest of this episode. Uh, I, w- I will with with one small exception, and that is, can we get out of this pus party? I would I would like, do you have any parties to take us to that aren't made of pus? Well, let's see. We, we could go on the uh, quickly summarized scientific research bandwagon party. Oh, well, luckily there's a montage button inside the Wayback Machine, so, <laughs> so you just hit that. Yeah, now we got to go on the montage because there are actually a bunch of scientists over the ensuing decades that contributed a lot more to the study of heredity and DNA, and we don't have time to go into all of their research. Uh, but but so after Misha at this point, you know that there are genes that convey traits from parents to offspring and we know about DNA, but we hadn't put them together. We didn't know that one was the uh, the, the DNA was the agent of heredity. Uh, and so in 1944, a group of scientists, Avery, McLeod and McCarty, showed that DNA conveys hereditary traits, that DNA is the agent of Mendelian genetics. And finally, in 1953, you finally got to Crick and Watson plus a couple others, actually. Francis Crick, James Watson, Maurice Wilkins, and Rosalind Franklin demonstrated the structure of DNA. So they put together the model of the double helix molecule of DNA, the one we've all seen now. It looks like a ladder that you twist it up like a spring. Right. Like a, like a twizzler. Yeah. Or, or like a like a, like a a spiral staircase. Yeah. yeah okay. Along those lines. Yeah, a spiral ladder, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's got two spiraling parallel poles that are connected by rungs of uh, nucleobases. And the important thing about discovering the double helix shape of the molecule was that this showed how the DNA molecule was capable of conveying genetic information. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and pop on back over into a modern day and back into our studio and 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 just uh, concentrate more about uh, you know, other stuff we've learned about this amazing molecule. Okay, yes, this is better for reasons that I've promised not to mention again. Um, okay, but what so- What about pus? No, Joe! <laughs> you are so lucky the, the axe of mysticism is not currently in the podcast studio. Not the mystical axe. You never use the mystical axe as a weapon. Well, I'm sorely tempted. Okay, so despite this rich history of research into, into DNA, there is still so much that is going on in the field. All these studies being conducted, questions being answered, new questions that we never even conceived of being posed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we wanted to give you all a quick sample of some of the stuff we've seen recently, just to give you an idea of, of what kind of things are going on. Yeah, so first of all, we were talking about that double helix shape. One of the interesting bits of research that we encountered while looking into the the topic was that uh, some scientists have, have shown that DNA doesn't just hold that double helix shape. Yeah, it actually comes in lots of fun shapes. Yeah, so I, as, <laughs> I, as I said, is it kind of boogies. It moves yeah. around a lot. And actually, when you think about... Do you get stars, moons, and balloons, and clovers? Uh, it, it's not the lucky charm <laughs> shapes. Although some of them are similar to them. All right, so what's the deal here? We've been told about this double helix shape forever. Why are we suddenly seeing different shapes? Well, part of uh, what I've read is that when Watson and Crick were really describing the structure of DNA, they were looking at a length of DNA that was about 12 base pairs long, something like that, like one turn of DNA. But DNA has to turn many, many, many times. It has to be super coiled because DNA is a very long molecule. 
But it has to fit within the nucleus of a cell. Uh, right. And most nucleus, nucleuses, nuclei of cells are not a few meters long, which right. is really the length of a DNA chain. Right. So to fit that inside a cell's nucleus, you have to coil and coil and coil and coil this, this, uh, shape. And if you've ever dealt with any kind of like cable or anything, any real long length of, of something that's got lots of kinks and then, you can see all sorts of weird shapes. And also, as you uncoil it, it can spring in ways that are terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the DNA uh, molecule ends up creating these uh, these other odd shapes that, that the scientists were able to observe. Um, it was kind of interesting how they did it. They used a method called cryo-electron tomography. Uh, to study the the actual shapes, and they observed all sorts of interesting ones, like figure eights, or coiled so tightly that it looked like it was a rod, not even two separate strands anymore. Hmm. Uh, also, according to one of the scientists, some of them look like rackets or handcuffs. So maybe okay. maybe if your molecules are being naughty in your cell's <laughs> nucleus, the DNA will just go ahead and. Slap the cuffs on. I don't know how that works. At any rate. No clovers, though. No clovers that I saw. I mean, it's entirely possible that it just was not included on the list. Yeah. Really? Probably horseshoes, though. Uh Yeah. If if you crossed a couple of pairs of handcuffs, you'd essentially have a clover. Yeah. I I would allow for the possibility that a clover could, in fact, be one of the many shapes that DNA could take, but depending on the coiling. Mm -hmm. Uh, The important thing here, though, is that understanding the shape of the molecules can help uh, doctors develop better medicines and scientists help develop better medicines because the, the... Drugs we take, typically what it does is it releases some molecules into our system, and those molecules are looking for other molecules of a specific shape. So knowing more about the shape of DNA can make more effective uh, uh, medicines that are specifically looking for those shapes. So it does have a practical application. It's not just the idea of we just want to learn more, although, as we say on the show all the time, that, that in itself is a worthy endeavor most of the time. Okay, how about one other really interesting fact about DNA? We mentioned earlier how there was the discovery over time that DNA is the gene, that Mm -hmm. DNA is the molecule in the body that conveys genetic information from parent to offspring. But one of the weird facts that we're discovering, uh, we actually started discovering in the 20th century, but we're learning more about all the time, is something called horizontal gene transfer, which is where you can get a gene in your genome that doesn't come from your parents. What? Doesn't happen very often with humans. It happens all the time with single-celled organisms like bacteria yeah. where uh, where they can trade genes. It's almost like a way for bacteria to sort of have sex. They don't really, but they can exchange genetic information back and forth between their genomes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it turns out that there appears to be DNA within the genomes of larger organisms that looks like it probably came from organisms other than this organism's direct uh, ancestors. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you might wonder, how could something like that happen? Uh, and in fact, uh, it can happen through something that's called the endogenous retrovirus, or ERVs. Um, these are retroviruses that once infected uh, some sort of organism in the past, and they're really, really, really good at replicating themselves, at least for a few generations until mutations make that uh, a non-factor. So the way this works is a retrovirus can replicate itself by infiltrating a cell, a host cell, 
and it inserts some of its own viral genome into the nuclear genome of the host cell. So it's sort of, you know, hacking into the mainframe, putting a copy of itself into the host uh, cell. Uh, now, this you, this can include, it doesn't normally include, it usually, but it can include uh, uh, germline cells. Those are the cells that produce egg and sperm cells. And once in a while, even more rarely, an infected germline cell will go on to develop into a viable organism. And so then you'll have uh, this viral genome become part of the genome of the overall organism. Right. And that's where you get this this mysterious DNA that would not have been part of uh, a typical individual of that organism species. It's actually been introduced through this virus. Yeah. And these strains of, of uh, the genome, the viral genome, can remain in the organism's genome over the course of numerous generations, over millions of years, in fact. But because organisms undergo mutation, typically – uh, one mutation or another is going to render the the viral genome's ability to replicate the actual virus null and void. Mm-hmm. So you'll you'll eventually get to a point where the organisms have the viral genome as part of their DNA, mm-hmm. but they're not making the virus anymore because of other unrelated mutations that that organism uh, species has undergone over multiple generations. Uh, yeah, and and no one's really sure how much of our DNA could have possibly been influenced by this kind of process. Some estimates have it as high as like eight percent, which is crazy. Yeah. Now, one th- that is amazing. But one thing to clarify is that you shouldn't misunderstand. You shouldn't think that oh, if I have eight percent of my genome from uh, bacteria or viruses or some other organisms on Earth, it's not like that happened since you were born. That means like over the generations, this many horizontal gene transfer events have accumulated into the genome that created you when you were born. Right, right. right. Um, And part of the reason that it's difficult to suss out how this happens is is that it's really hard to get direct observational evidence of it. And one right. one one bit of research uh, that that we ran across was uh this this study into a transfer between pine trees and insects that happened millions of years ago and basically has made pine trees what they are today. Yeah. And just and, and you know it's it's the first time that we've or it's one of the few times rather that we have directly observed b- been able to directly trace that kind of data. So, yeah, cool stuff. It's really interesting. If y'all don't mind me plugging on the other podcast that I do, Step to Blow Your Mind, Robert Lamb and I did an episode on horizontal gene transfer back in December of 2015, I think. So if you want to check that out, there's a whole episode on that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, One of the other questions that uh, has been kind of roiling around in the scientific community is how cells protect their DNA. Hmm. With extreme prejudice. It's yes. I mean, and that is the answer, really, Uh, because, okay, so (laughs) so the inner cell mechanics involving DNA are are complex because DNA is stored in a cell's nucleus. Mm -hmm. Um, The nucleus is surrounded by this complex structure called the nuclear envelope, which contains a series of, of gates that lead in and out of it, which is called the nuclear pore complex. And 
you know, molecules have to get in and out of the nucleus so that the cell could like create proteins and do stuff. Uh, but the envelope also has to be vigilant because if a virus can penetrate it, then it'll hijack the cell's DNA to do its bidding. Bad times. Um, and, and there are even some diseases that specifically weaken the envelope and make your cell nuclei more susceptible to viral infection. But it's difficult to study because because in terms of, of cell proportion, the envelope is huge. And and the pore complex is is constantly shifting. Uh, re- researchers, uh, the the research that I read referred to it like as like jiggling, like like gelatin, like a big old bowl full of jelly. <laughs> um, so so it's been really hard to to get a to get a handle on. Mm-hmm. And this team out of Caltech has been working on it for like a decade, and finally uh, in in. In this year, in 2016, started to publish results that explain exactly how molecules get transferred, uh, or, or, or transported rather, like like lead into and out of the pores, and and how data is moved from DNA to RNA to ribosomes, which, as we said earlier, do that actual work of synthesizing proteins within cells. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so learning about all of this is is just really cool and could help us suss out how to protect ourselves against viral infections. Well, that's obviously a good thing because of how dependent we are on our DNA. Isn't it kind of annoying that we've got to kowtow to this tiny little molecule? Why can't we be the boss? Why can't we make DNA do what we want it to do? Well, we're getting there. Uh it's 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 complicated, but we're getting there. Uh, what's really cool is that we've actually seen some some scientists work with DNA as if it were a programming language, right? Like it is essentially a set of instructions. So if you were able to write a specific set of instructions, you could, in theory, make some sort of cell do something that you want it to do. Uh, so some synthetic biologists have been working with DNA to find ways to manipulate it and program it in this way. So uh, some at MIT developed a software called Cello, C-E-L-L-O, that's essentially <laughs> – because of the way I'm, ta- I'm talking right now, it sounds like I'm saying Jello. Uh, <laughs> no, it makes me wonder, why didn't they just go ahead and stick an H in there? Yeah. It would have been funny. Cello. Uh, it's uh, essentially a programming language for DNA. I'm sure it stands for something, and it just didn't see what it stood for. Right. Wait a minute. A programming language for DNA. Now, that's interesting because yeah. often, oftentimes people use the analogy of a programming language to describe DNA. Right. So this approach, what it does is it allows people who are not advanced synthetic biologists – to come up with ways of programming a strand of DNA to execute a specific type of instruction under a specific circumstance. So in classic computing terms, you can think of it as an if-then. If cell encounters X, then do action Y, like that sort of thing. You can actually program it to do that sort of stuff. That's fascinating. It's pretty cool. So one of the examples that I read about uh, in Nature that was where this article was published – said imagine that you you create a strand of dna that tells the cell to produce a certain drug whenever the cell detects a particular set of me- metabolic conditions so in other words if that those metabolic conditions are present the cell goes into production mode and starts producing this drug you could easily see how something like that could be incredible 
for different uh, medicinal uh, purposes. Uh, yeah, hypothetically. I mean, I'm not sure if this is something that would be possibly on the table, but uh, if, if, you're, if your body starts producing histamines in response to some kind of allergen that it's just freaking out about, then your cells could detect those histamines and create antihistamines to calm everything down. I would like that because I, I miss shrimp. Oh. Yeah, it's all right. That's all right. I've got other things I can eat. I don't really mind. Well, well, maybe maybe that's coming in the future. I sure hope so, because a friend of mine shared a picture of shrimp and grits on Facebook, and now oh. that's all I can think about. So, oh, that terrible human. You, yeah. you listeners out there should know that Jonathan and I were sitting in the studio before recording, and he was just mourning the fact that he couldn't eat this shrimp. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was pretty rough. But <laughs> but it's all right. There are bigger problems in the world than my allergy to shellfish. Uh, one of those problems, actually, is how do we produce synthetic DNA in a way that is uh, uh, cost effective and and is relatively simple because, as it turns out, making DNA in the lab is expensive. It's complicated. It takes a lot of energy. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that part. So we're talking about having a programming language yeah. for DNA. But what good is that if you can write a program, but you can't turn it into physical molecules? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough, right? So one of the things I, that we read about that I thought was so interesting was – um, some scientists were looking at the possibility of using different chemicals while working with DNA uh, and seeing how that would affect the process. And one person in this uh, in this group of researchers said, we should really try cyanuric acid. And I, I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> a fellow of infinite jest. He used to clean my pool. <laughs> The reason I say that is cyanuric acid is actually used by by people to to as a treatment for pools. It actually, really? yeah, okay, it's a stabilizer. So you know, you've heard about adding chlorine to pools so that you can make sure your your pool's not a, heard infested. about it. I felt it in my eyeballs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, cyanuric acid, what it does is it binds with chlorine and allows for a more controlled release of chlorine, so that you don't just end up like deep shocking your pool and then. You know, 30 minutes later, it just becomes a bacteria cesspit. You don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cyanuric acid also has an effect on DNA. Uh, it actually can cause DNA to form into triple helix formations. The, the cyanuric acid ends up becoming essentially a third uh, rail of that ladder. Huh. And it then ends up uh, having the other two sides bind with it. And this allows for the potential new use of DNA in various nanotechnology applications. Though at the moment, it's really early. Uh, right now, we know that this is the effect it can have on DNA. Where we can actually apply that knowledge remains to be seen. There are a lot of, of hopes that we can use this in multiple ways, but we're still kind of uh, in the earliest days right now. So it's not like I have a practical application I can just spring out there. So that's sort of our, our, our kind of uh, DNA 101, which has lots of open questions in it that are, are currently being studied by people who are dedicating their lives to that kind of research. In our next episode, we're really going to look at how are we using DNA in uh, practical applications today and how do we hope to use it in the future uh, some of the ways apart from just using it to make our bodies. Right, right. Well, right, I mean, right. We'll still be doing that. I mean, Fingers crossed. I'm not talking about like using it unconsciously. I mean, like consciously making use of using DNA. DNA as a technology, right? Yeah. Using DNA as a technology. So we're going to really focus on that in our next episode. Guys, remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes or you have questions or comments on things we've said, get in touch with us. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you guys. 
The address you can use if you want to use email is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on social networks. We are on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking on Facebook. Our profile will pop up. You can leave us a message there. And we will talk to you again about DNA really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.